And uh, we're gonna end this series today with a message for the sake of the one, part four. So take out your notes, take out your Bibles. John chapter six is where we're gonna go. If you don't have a Bible, open up a smartphone Bible, get there. We're gonna read that in just a moment. But here's the title of the message. Who is the one? Who is the one? All this series we've been saying, who is your one? And we asked you to write down that one on these cards from a few weeks ago, seven days of prayer. Hopefully you haven't stopped praying for that person. Praying that God will open their hearts, bring them to himself. And then we talked about funding the message. That was week two. Then last week, Medi talked about the uh, intergenerational movement of Jesus. You never know who that one's gonna reach beyond them. And I was thinking about this whole series about looking forward to your one who God is going to reach with the gospel. But what about the one? Can I ask you this question, and I want you to write it down as a question that's very familiar to many Christians from non-Christians, and here's the question. Why do Christians want to see more people become Christians? And maybe you've heard that question You're at you, or maybe somebody's, you know, wondered, why do Christians always want to you know, spread their values and beliefs on other people? Why, why are they so, some, some many, not all, but some, so adamant about getting other people to become, what's the big deal? Just leave me be. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. And some people are under the false impression that we want more people to become Christians because we want, we want to you know, shift the political temperature of our country. It's all about politics with Christians. Unfortunately, a lot of people have that, that mindset. Some people think it's about just making people better people. If everybody's a Christian, everybody be better. Some people think that it's all about control. We just want to control your lives, tell you what not to do. We want you to not have so much fun. We want you to be a little bit more miserable and religious. That's what we're after. No. And here's the thing. It's not also this idea that we're better than them. Right? Christians are not always better than non-Christians. In fact, some of the most jacked, people, jacked up people I know are Christians. Anybody know a jacked up Christian? If you don't know one, you might be one. Okay, I'm just letting you know. And here's the deal. Here, here's the deal. We aren't any better than anybody else. All that's different between us and non-Christians is we know that Jesus is worth it. We know that there's no one like Jesus. The great uh, former atheist turned apologist for the faith from the last century, C.S. Lewis, said that I came to Christianity looking for a program and I met a person. Christianity is not a program. It's not a get yourself together program. It's not a get religion program. Christianity is get to know the one who made you, who formed you, who loves you, who died for you, and who's coming back again for you in the future. That's what Christianity is about. So here's the answer. Why do Christians want to see more people become Christians? Write it down. Because Jesus is the one. I want to inspire you to give today, not because you're going to earn brownie points in heaven, although you will. I want to inspire you to give today because you know that Jesus is worth it. Who you know, him, you want other people to know. You never have to like, convince somebody once they've had a good experience at a restaurant to tell other people about that restaurant, right? You never have to convince, all right, now make sure you tell everybody that the steak was good. No, if the steak's good, they're gonna tell you. 
And here's the thing about a good Christian. A good Christian is not necessarily a very moral person, a person who's religious, a person who's got their lives together. A good Christian is someone who can't stop talking about the one who saved them in spite of them. That's who we are. That's what Christians are. In John chapter six, we're gonna get to the text. Open your Bibles there. We're gonna read it in just a moment, but we're gonna get to this moment where Jesus kind of winnows the crowd that he's been preaching to. And the story of John chapter six, it's a very long chapter. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter. We're gonna read some highlights. But the, the chapter opens up with Jesus leading and speaking to about 20,000 people. We know it's about 20,000 people because the beginning of John chapter six is the feeding of the 5,000. And when it says the feeding of 5,000, it really means that he fed 5,000 men because in the ancient world, you counted people by the heads of households, men with the heads of households. So it meant that there was 5,000 households following Jesus and getting fed that day. If it was 5,000 men, add women and children, and you've probably got close to 20,000 people following Jesus. Jesus had the first megachurch. Yeah, yeah, John chapter 6. But then you read John chapter 6, and he starts teaching the people. He starts leading them through the truth of who he is. And it's this passage that really gets them where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. I am the bread from heaven. And the people start saying, who does this guy think he is? And one by one, they start getting turned off by the message of Jesus being the one. And they dissipate. And the crowd leaves. And the story ends with Jesus standing alone. John chapter 6 opens with 20,000 people following him. John chapter 6 ends with 12 disciples sticking with him. Jesus grew his church from 20,000 down to 12. And that immediately blacklisted him from the church growth seminars of his day. That immediately blacklisted him from how to run a successful business, keynote speaking slots in the conferences of his day. In fact, what happened was the church winnowed down to a few 12 disciples and he turns to them and says, are you gonna leave also? And they say, where can we go? You are the Holy One of God and have the eternal words of life. In other words, they knew that Jesus was the one. Stand with me for the reading of God's word as we read from John chapter six. Now I wanna give you some context. Jesus fed the crowd, 20,000 people fed with five loaves, two fishes. Jesus goes across the lake with his disciples. Actually, he walks on the water and then they meet up on the other side. In verse 25, it says this, when they found him, the crowd, found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you got your tummies fed. You want them fed again. Then verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father set his seal. And they said to him, what shall we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to do? We want to see miracles. We want to see you perform. What will you do to make us believe? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And then they say to them, they, uh, then he says to them in verse 20, uh, uh, sorry, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him, 
Because he said, I came down from heaven. I'm the bread, of hev- I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother, father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Skip down to verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood, drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 60. When the disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 66, probably the saddest verse in all the Gospels. After this, many, somebody say many. Many many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him and said, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that these next few moments are governed by the Holy Spirit. I pray that all of our hearts will be be open to what you want to say, that you will deposit the good seed of your word in our spirits, that your word will take root below and bear fruit above. And Father, I pray that every single one of us here or watching by video, we'll see Jesus. Him and him only. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Two things are happening in John chapter six. Jesus is performing miracles, preaching the truth, losing people, but he's also taking the people through a guided tour of the Old Testament stories. This is kind of cool. So you gotta understand that the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament. There's this false belief that there's two Testaments, that the New Testament has nothing to do with the Old Testament, and so Christians just kind of throw out the Old Testament and we just go by the New Testament. No. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Are you, you got me? The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So Jesus does two things in this chapter early on. First thing he does is he feeds them miraculously with bread. Now these are Jews. And they would have known about a story like this in their past, right? They came out of Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness. They get hungry just like normal people do. And guess what happens? God says through Moses, in the morning you're going to wake up. There's going to be bread ready for you. 
God cooks them heavenly bread for 40 years in the wilderness. They get up, there's plenty of bread. Nobody had to cook. Nobody had to put it together. Nobody had to knead or, 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 or mold it or bake it. It was just there on the ground for them. And God miraculously fed them bread from heaven. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus is doing the exact same thing, feeding miraculously from heaven. Then after that story... The scripture says that they were going to make him king by force because they were so impressed by the bread. That's what happens when you feed 20,000 people. They start to like you. So Jesus says, no, 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 this is not what I come for. And he sends his disciples across the sea and he goes up onto a mountain to pray. And the disciples go across the sea and the sea is stormy and the winds are howling and they're fighting for their lives and they're rowing like crazy trying to get through the sea. And what do they see? But Jesus starts coming to them, not swimming, but walking on the water. And he says a word to them. In our English Bibles, it's mistranslated. He says this, take heart, I am. That phrase would have reminded them of something that God heard, Moses heard God say back in Exodus, right? What did Moses say? What should I tell them is your name? Tell them I am is my name. And Jesus says to the disciples, I am. And he leads them through the stormy waters and safely to the other side. Now the Jews would have known about a story like that too. Because when they come out of Egypt, they face the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's on their back. They're going against the sea or the army. They think they're dead. And Moses sticks out his staff over the sea and the waters divide. And God leads them through the waters safely to the other side. Jesus has brought his disciples through a guided tour, a, a, like one of, those, one of those 3D roller coasters where they're bringing you right through the adventure itself and giving you a firsthand experience of what it was like to go through it. And Jesus is pointing to his disciples saying, I'm the one who made the bread and I'm the one who calms the seas. I'm the one you need. And as the people start to listen to him, they start to realize the claims that he's making. This is not just some prophet. This is not just some teacher. This is a man claiming to be God. As Jesus says in John 5, 39, just the previous chapter, John 5, 39, he says, look, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but those scriptures do what? Everybody say it. Point to me. Point to me. Those, the Bible is about Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, let me, let me help you understand something. The Bible is not a religious manual on how to get your life together. The life is not a roadmap for living. Life is not a blueprint for life. The Bible is the story of how God sent his son Jesus into a world lost in sin to bring us out and make us his children once again, to restore what Adam lost and to bring us safely into his kingdom in peace and in joy. That's what the Bible's about. And at the end of this chapter, when Jesus makes these claims, the Jews are just not having it. And Jesus' congregation goes from 20,000 down to 12. And so here's the deal. Only 12 people stayed with him. And I wonder today if you understand that Jesus is the one in your life. I got five points to test you on this for, you, for yourself. Because you know when Jesus is the one, five points. I got five points. I know he's got three points. I'm throwing two in for free today. So whatever you were going to give at the end of this message, double it. Amen. Point number one. Jesus is the one, write it down, when I realize that temporary satisfactions are only temporary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Temporary satisfactions. And this world is all about temporary satisfactions. Ladies and gentlemen, every commercial message that you get, every commercial is the same thing. 
You're not what you should be. You don't have what you should have. And if you buy our product, you'll get there. Want to lose weight? There's a pill for that. Want to be happy? There's a pill for that too. Want to avoid COVID? There's two shots and two boosters for that. We got what you need to be happy. We got what you need to be satisfied. And here's the thing. Sometimes God lets us have what we think we need to be happy. And then we get it and then we realize we need something else to be happy. I mean, it's the trajectory of life. Some of you are in high school and you're thinking, as soon as I get out of high school, I'll be happy. And you get to college, you're like, as soon as I get out of this college, I'll be happy. And you're single and you're like, as soon as I get married, I'll be happy. And all the married people need to be like, yeah. <laughs> That's why all the people that come to me at the altar to get married, I'm always like telling them, all right, listen, you're gonna hate each other one day. But they don't listen, so I tell it to the crowd. Everybody pay attention, because in five weeks, these people are gonna come back to me for marital counseling. Because they think that life is gonna be great from now on. It's not. Whatever we think is gonna make us happy only usually gives us temporary happiness. Can I get a witness from anybody in this? Oh, oh as soon as we have kids, we're gonna be happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in the stage where it's like, as soon as we get these kids out of the house, we're gonna be happy. But when you get the kids out of the house, it's just you and that person again. That's why you had kids in the first place, because you were bored with each other initially. Merry Christmas, everybody. Are you encouraged by this message? Temporary satisfactions are only... And Jesus is the one when you realize it. I don't know how long it's going to take. Some of you are stubborn. It's going to take until you're 80. Some of you are young. You already realized that. Rejoice and be glad that God did not have to have 80 years of you getting frustrated with false idols. And whatever we think, whatever we imagine, this is gonna make my life satisfactory. It doesn't last. And the disciples, the, the, the Jews that day in that wilderness had to realize that. Look what it says in verse 25 again. They hunted him down on the other side of the water and they found him on there. Because why? Because they fed him the day before and they show up, they're all like nonchalant. They're like, oh, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus knows their thoughts. He's not a dummy. He knows exactly what they're thinking. Verse 26, he says to them, truly, truly. And by the way, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, it means he's gonna open a can of truth on you. He says, you're not seeking me. You want your tummies fed again. Then he says in verse 27, don't work for food that perishes. Listen, anything that you think is gonna make you happy in this life, I'm, I got nothing wrong with that. There's not necessarily anything wrong with those things. It's just that they perish. Eventually, the job that you long for gets old. Come on, somebody. Eventually, the person that you married gets old. Come on, somebody. And so do you, so don't be all judgmental. You know what I'm saying? It's not that there's something wrong with it. It's just that we experience that there's something still missing no matter what we add to our lives. I got a book that I keep on my shelf for two different reasons. This book inspired me many years ago. It's, it's called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. Tony Shea started a company in 1998 called Link Exchange. During the dot-com boom, his company took off, and Microsoft bought him out for $187 million. He was 23 years old. 
He took the 187 million, he started investing in little companies because he was a go-getter, an entrepreneur. And he fell in love with one particular little shoe company. The shoe company was called Zappos. And he decided that he was gonna make an all-in bet on this online shoe company. And it came to a point where the company was out of money, they weren't making money, they knew they had to buy all this product, they knew they had to make a substantial investment. And he reached out to all of his venture capitalist friends and he raised zero dollars, nobody wanted to invest. And so he writes in the book in page 103, he says, I knew it was gonna have to be me going all in for shoes. And so I did it. And he took his $187 million from Microsoft and he dumped it into this failing little shoe company. And it took off. Years later, he sold that company to Amazon.com for $6 billion. That, that story inspired me back in the day because I thought here was a guy going all in for shoes. And I said to the church back then, I said to the staff, I said, guys, I wanna be part of a church that goes all in for souls. Anybody with me? I mean, if that guy will sell out for shoes, the church has got to sell out for souls. Now the rest of the story. This past COVID pandemic, he was alone in an apartment in New York City. Six billion dollar man, utterly depressed, alone and isolated. And he OD'd on drugs and he died. I keep this book on my shelf now for two reasons. To inspire me that I do need to go all in for souls. As a church, that's what we're all about. But secondly, that there's only one person who can deliver happiness, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Now the Jews wanted more bread, but they should have known through their own story that no, 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 more bread won't satisfy because the story of the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt and they started eating daily bread, they even got sick of the daily bread. Numbers chapter 11 tells us this. It says the people of Israel also began to what? Complain. And what do they say? Oh, for some meat. We want some T-bone. And it says, we remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt. What? Man, don't we always look at the past through rose-colored glasses? Oh, it wasn't that bad. I know they whipped us. I know they starved us. But on occasion, they gave us free fish. I mean, this is how we do it, though, as Christians, too. And watch out, new Christians, because this is what the devil will come and tell you, that your old life was actually better than this new life. And if you're not careful, you'll wander back into the old life only to be vomited back out into Jesus. Amen, somebody. I say, all we see is this manna. All we see is this manna. See, whatever we think satisfies us eventually gets old to us. We're made for the one who made us. Here's an old song from the 70s about a man who was stuck in what he thought was a loveless relationship. And he was sick of it, going through the routine, the ritual, it just got stale. So he was reading the paper one night with his girlfriend laying asleep right next to him and he comes across an article in the personal ads. Does anybody know what it said? If you like pina colada, getting caught in the rain. If you're not into yoga, if you got half a brain, if you like making love at midnight, tunes of the cape, yeah, 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 I'm the one, I'm the one that you look for, write to me and escape, 
so he goes and he answers the ad. And the ad comes back to him, and then they decide to meet up at O'Malley's, an old bar down the street. And when he gets there, the final, the final verse is hilarious. And it says this, so I waited with high hopes as she walked in the place. I knew her smile in an instant. I knew the curve of her face. It was my old lovely lady. And she said, oh, it's you. Then we laughed for a moment. Then I said, I never knew that you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. This is a story about a man who thought that if he left the one he was with, he'd find something better, only to find the one that he was with. And so many times in our lives, we think if we just leave God and find something better, if we just run from the maker, if we just go after this world and all it has to offer, we'll finally realize that the only one that truly makes us happy is the one who made us in the first place. Jesus said in John chapter 6, 35, I am the bread. If you come and eat, you'll never be hungry again. If you come and drink, you'll never be thirsty again. Number two, Jesus is the one when I realize that earthly power corrupts. Earthly power corrupts. We have a saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, every four years, our country flips out because we are wondering and fearful of who's gonna have the power. And if there's one thing that the COVID-19 pandemic has taught me, it is this, that governments love power. And when they get it, they don't like to give it up. And this world is all built on that. Who is running whose lives? Who's in charge? And this is what the Jews wanted from Jesus, because look what it says there in verse 28. They said to him, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Now, what, they were, what they're saying is, we want the power you got. What do we need to have your power to do the works of God? What's Jesus' answer? This is the work of God. Believe in me. Believe in me. In other words, surrender your rights. Surrender what you think will make you happy. Surrender control of your life. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is somebody who has given up control to Jesus. Lay down the power that you want and you will find power in me. Verse 40, he says, this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him, him I will raise up on the last day. Now the Jews should have been very aware too that power corrupts. That was, in their, that was in their history as well. There was a man named David who gave them power over their enemies. David won every battle they ever fought. He freed them from the Philistines and the Hittites and the Jebusites. He, he beat everybody around them, and Israel rose to prominence in about the eighth century BC and they, become, they became the most powerful nation on the earth and Solomon became the most prominent king in all the earth in eighth century BC. And it was from that moment forward that the nation of Israel became just as corrupt as the nations that God had handed over to them. Because the power that you think you need in this life will corrupt you as well. It's amazing to watch the most humble people when they're given a little bit of position. They become Nazis overnight. Anybody run into a mask Nazi lately? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it amazing? These little short people. Why are they always short? They're all the shortest people. Put your mask on. Just a little bit of power. A little bit of power. They turn into insane people. It's amazing to see. We're not made to have power. We're made for surrender. And here's the thing about the Christian message. The Christian message is the moment you surrender is the moment you got the power. 
You give your life over to the, the Son of God, he will raise your life from the dead. And when you have the hope of the resurrection in you, my friend, that's when all the world's powers fall off of you. What can the world do to someone who believes that this life is not the end? They tried to do all kinds of things to the apostle Paul, but he was firmly convinced that there was a resurrection coming. So they locked him up in prison. And they said, well, take away your rights. He said, that's no problem. I'll just witness to the prison guards until they're annoyed. Then they're like, we're gonna cut your head off. And he's like, that's all right, to die is gain. To depart from this world and be with Christ is far better. Let's go, let's do it. What can you do to somebody who believes that the next life is the real life? That's how the world loses its hold on you, my friend. That's how you stop worrying about COVID-19. That's how you get your courage back. That's how you get your faith back. That's how you stop walking in the fears of this age and start walking in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Because you know there's a resurrection coming. Jesus is the one, number three, when I realized that it's only God's grace that saves. It's only God's grace that saves, and again, in John chapter six, Jesus is winnowing the crowd, winnowing the crowd. And by the way, good preaching always winnows the crowd from the, the believers, from the real believers, the fakes from the real ones. So verse 41, Jesus can pick up on this and they start grumbling. They're like, hey, who are you to say you come down from heaven? We know your mom, we know your dad, Joseph, we know who you are. How can you say that you came down from heaven? And I love how Jesus just goes full sovereignty of God on them right here. Look at what he says in verse 43. Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, what? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Full sovereignty of God. Jesus wasn't worried about the results because he knew that God would bring the ones that he wanted to bring to himself. I'll raise them up on the last day. Some of you need to underline that sentence. No one can come to the, me unless the Father first draws. You know what? You know that verse gives me great comfort in my life. It should give you great comfort, Christian. It should give you great comfort to know that the only reason why you are now a Christian is because God worked the narrative of your story to the point where you surrender to Jesus. You're here today not because you made the decision. You're here today because the Father reached out to you and drew you to his son, Jesus Christ. And why should that bring you great comfort? Because God never starts something he doesn't plan on finishing. Whatever God began in you, he will complete in you until the day of Christ Jesus. That's gonna get you through those bad days. That's gonna get you through some hard weeks. That's gonna get you through the cancer. That's gonna get you through the divorce to know that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is why Christians can't boast. You ever meet a boasting Christian? That's right, I became a Christian. They're not a Christian. <laughs> Christians can't boast about anything they did. They can only boast about what Christ did. That's what Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Well, I'm not even worthy of this mission, Paul says. By the way, I'm not worthy to be called your pastor. I'm not your pastor because I was a good person. I'm your pastor because God called me to this. It's the gift of God in my life. That's all that it is. And who you are, ladies and gentlemen, is who you are by God's grace. That's what he says in the next verse, verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And some of you need to tell that to yourself on a regular basis. In fact, let's all do that right now on the count of three. Say those words, one, two, three. But by the grace of God, what? Oh, you gotta say it like you mean it. Come on, one, two, three. No, that was worse. Okay, let's start with but. One, two, three. Just turn to your neighbor and say, it's God's grace. Just turn to your neighbor. This is God's grace. That's all it is. Just turn to your wife and say, he's still working on me. Don't, don't worry about it. I'll get around to putting a toilet seat down someday. He's still working on me. But see, Christians know that it is God's grace and only God's grace that made them Christians. That's why we can never look down on the world. We never look at them and say, oh, they, they're terrible people. What, terrible people? No, 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 pray for them. That's why in this message series, we said you pray for your, for your friend, you pray for your neighbor, you pray for your family, come to Christ. But you're not praying for them to make the decision, you're praying for God in heaven to open their hearts to receive Jesus. But number four, Jesus is the one when his word comes alive to you. You know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Here's the, here's the difference. A Christian hears the word of God and they say yes. It doesn't mean that they always do it. No, they'll fail on a regular basis. But when they hear it, they're like, yes, I need that. I know it because sometimes I'll say things that just hit you right here between the eyes and you're like, ah, but you're right. But a non-Christian hears the word of God and they say, I'll pick that and I'll choose that, but I'll leave the rest out. And I want to say something to the non-Christians that are listening to me right now. You're not an original. You know that, right? You're not original. I would actually bet that the passages of Scripture that you have a problem with are not because you thought of it, but because your culture thought of it. Your environment taught you that. And that's why... When you take the Bible and you show it to Muslims in the Middle East, and you show them passages like a man should have only one wife, and a man should, you know, a wife should submit to her husband, and the Muslim says, well, I, all right, I'll, I'll get on the board with that. But then you turn to Jesus and you say, okay, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Oh, by the way, he also said you should love your enemies. A Muslim says, no, 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 I'm not taking that. Take the same Bible over to America and you just say, okay, Jesus said that you should love your enemies and forgive those who insult you and persecute you. And, a, and an American will say, you know what? That's actually good. It's very noble. I like that. Oh, yeah, but Jesus also said that marriage is between a man and a woman and that any sex outside of marriage is actually ungodly. It's fornication. And an American says, oh, no, no, no. I don't agree with that. They're not doing it because they're original. They're doing it because they're products of their environment. You understand that when you know Jesus, when the Spirit of God is alive in you, that when you hear God's Word, it comes alive to you, and though you might not do all of it, you know all of it is true, and you need to submit to it. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 6. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then he says, it is written in the prophets, they will all be what? Taught by God. When you go to the Word, you're being taught by the Father. And then he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. Heard and learned what? The scriptures. So the scriptures Jesus will say in John 6, 63, he says, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing, and the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You know you're a Christian when it comes alive to you. You know, you know you're a Christian when God, God's word cannot insult you out of the church.
So the people are listening to Jesus speak, and they've had enough. In the end of John chapter 6, again, very, very, very sad passage. Verse 66, at this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They're like, all right, that's it, we're out of here. People getting offended at the true word of God is nothing new. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And, 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 and this beautiful moment happens, but we gotta get to point number five here. Jesus is the one, number, number five. When I stop following the crowd and I stay with him, now to the beautiful moment. 20,000 people started following Jesus in John chapter six, verse one. 12 people are left. Jesus turns to the 12, says, you wanna go away as well? And Peter, oh, I love Peter. Mr. Open Mouth, insert foot, but sometimes, sometimes Peter just nailed it. This is one of those times. What does he say, Lord to what? Notice that he doesn't say, where are we gonna go? And notice that he doesn't say, to what shall we go? I came to Christianity looking for a program and I met a person. No, he says, to whom shall we go? There's no one else, Lord. You have the words of eternal life. There's something about what you say that makes, us, makes sense in here. And some of you right here sitting right now, you're, you're saying that right now. Something's hitting you right here. Something's happening right here. The word of God is getting into your heart. And it's a sign that God is coming to get you, coming to bring you into his family. Because I love what Peter says. We have believed and we have come to know. Process. I, I came to know that you are the Holy One of God. When Jesus is the one, nothing on this earth can satisfy. Power in this life doesn't satisfy. You know you're saved by grace. When the world walks away, you hang on because you know he's worth it. The old story goes of an old man and his son. They used to love traveling the world together, collecting pieces of art, rare pieces of art, Monet's, Rembrandt's, Van Gogh's. The collection was impressive. Eventually war broke out. The son had to go away to war. He fought in a battle in a terrible skirmish. He ended up having to give his life for his country. And in the process, he saved a few friends along the way. News came back to the father that his son was dead and he grieved horribly. A couple of years later, there's a knock on the door. Father opened the door to the man. He said, you don't know me, but I know your son. He gave his life for me. And we were good friends overseas in that war. And I got to know him and he told me about your love for art and I wanna give you a gift in honor of your son. I'm not a great painter by any stretch of the imagination, but I painted a portrait of your son. And he turned the portrait and showed him to the old man. And the old man was overcome with emotion as he saw how wonderfully this young man had captured his son's personality in that portrait. Years went by. That portrait was a precious heirloom of that man, hanging over the mantle of his fireplace. And then the old man died. And word got out, there's gonna be an old, wonderful auction of all this man's works, all the priceless pieces of art going on auction that day. All the rich and fabulous people came to that auction waiting to buy the Rembrandts and the Monets and the Van Goghs and they were ready for it. And the man hit the gavel on the table and the first piece of art that was presented was the portrait of the old man's son. And he said, here's our first piece of art. Who will give me $10? Nobody said anything. 
And the auctioneer kept going, $10. Do I hear $10 for the portrait of the old man's son? Eventually the crowd got ornery. They said, we don't want this piece. Give us the masterpieces. That's what we came for. Let's get the auction started. The auctioneer said, $10, just $10. Will anyone take it? And an old man walked in from the back. It was the old servant of the household. He said, I'll give you $10 for the portrait of the son. The auctioneer said, once, twice, sold for $10 to the old man in the back. At that, the man slammed the gavel down on the pulpit one more time and said, my friends, the auction has concluded. They said, what are you talking about? Let's get on with the real paintings and the real masterpieces. He said it was stipulated in the old man's will that whoever gets the son gets it all. Ladies and gentlemen, when you got the son, you got it all. You got it all. So the sermon in a sentence, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Jesus is the one who satisfies your soul, who empowers your life, and whose word you follow, no matter what others say or do. When we give right now, we're not giving just because we want to see people saved. We do, we, we desperately do, but, but down deep in our hearts is a belief that no one satisfies and nothing matches up to eternal life in Jesus Christ.